Hello, welcome to Whole Life Rising, a new podcast from inside the Whole Life Movement. Each episode, we will welcome a guest, discuss issues, and share stories from the front lines of Whole Life efforts to safeguard human life and dignity at all stages of life. I'm Robert Christian, the editor of the Whole Life publication Millennial, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Day, the executive director of Democrats for Life of America. It's a pleasure to be back here with you, Robert. Great. Let's get things started with our segment in the news. Last month, the first payments went out for the expanded child tax credit. This brings some immediate relief to a lot of families who may be struggling because of the pandemic or just the high cost of raising children with all the child care and health care inflation and other challenges families face. One liberal commentator noted, Democrats won't say this, but surely one impact of this will be fewer abortions. Do you agree, Kristen? And how do you think this will impact the country and American politics? Yeah, no, I, ha- I have mixed feelings on, on this with regard to the abortion rate. I think that the child care tax credit it will definitely help families raising young children, and particularly in the expenses that come along with it. Uh, as for abortion-minded women, I would like to see more emphasis on um, letting women know about where they can get support while pregnant because the $300 tax credit doesn't help a woman who finds herself pregnant and um, you know all the expenses that come along with that going to the doctor the prenatal care the clothes and um, all the expenses while you're pregnant so I would like to see that expanded to support uh, you know pregnant women uh, as well as new parents and I think that that might have an impact for women knowing that that money is available right away to help um, with their growing family Uh, and also focusing more on the the support side of being pregnant and um, you know and being prepared for you know taking care of the child once once the child comes into the world and uh, and definitely that that the $300 tax credit will help then. Yeah, I think it is just one piece of the puzzle, but I do think it can be an important one and it could reduce the abortion rate. You know, we know so many people that work with women in crisis pregnancies and economic precarity is so often a big factor with abortion and the lack of a strong social safety net here in the United States, that's something that is going to make that abortion rate higher than it should be. So this this won't solve everything, but I think it could help. Yes, I think it, it could help, you know, as long as, you know, a woman who is pregnant and, you know, it would have to be something that the abortionists would have to be, I don't know if we force them to tell women that this is going to be available because a lot of women may not know that there's a $300 tax credit that that will be available to them. Uh, You know, so I think uh, the abortionists have a single-minded financial benefit to performing the abortion. So they might not be, they're not very likely to say this is where you can get all the support. Mm-hmm. And in terms of politics, I think President Biden has to deliver for middle class and working class Americans. And this is a clear, easy to understand way of doing it, especially you're getting the check, you know, you don't have to wait for anything. So I think it's going to have a positive effect, especially if they're able to make this permanent. Yes, agreed, Robert. Now let's move on to our question of the month. Our question this month is, if you're a feminist, don't you have to be pro-choice? Absolutely not. I think if you're a feminist, you have to be (laughs) pro-life. What what kind of feminist would say that you have to kill your offspring to succeed at anything? That makes no sense whatsoever. And to sacrifice, one of the greatest gifts we're giving is to be mothers. Um, I mean, I'm the mother of three. 
it's it's an amazing process and it's an amazing gift that we have as women to be able to to bear children. And so I mean so I think it's very consistent with being a feminist to saying, yes, I can be a mother and yes, I can do X, Y, and Z. Uh, one of the, uh, you know, in watching the Olympics, we had the, the one uh, runner was uh, her, her little girl had a shirt. My mother can run faster than your mother. You know, so even seeing these athletes, athletes who are mothers um, go and be able to succeed. We, we can do multiple things as women. And it's more empowering to say that, yes, you can be a mother and you can be the CEO of a company. You can get an Olymp- win an Olympic gold. Uh, you can be a mother and enjoy raising your kids and um, do volunteer work. You know, we're we're very um, adaptable creatures, and we we have the ability to do a lot of things. And it's very, very, very opposite to feminists to say that you can't do any of those things unless you kill your baby. So I'm a proud pro-life feminist. And I think that position is very consistent. Can't really improve upon that response, but just sort of stepping back to a more theoretical level. I think the compatibility between being pro-life and a feminist also depends to a certain extent on the type of feminist you're talking about. Um, If one is a liberal feminist and choice and autonomy are the highest values, I can see why many would be pro-choice. But there's still an argument that the child is a separate human being and therefore has a right to life, liberty, and their own autonomy, those core liberal values. But to be honest, I do think that a form of radical feminism that values things like solidarity and equality and social justice and human dignity above the right to simply choose to do whatever you feel like doing in a particular moment, regardless of the impact, is more compatible with the whole life approach. So uh, this uh, a radical feminism can be more aligned with taking on unjust social structures or corporate practices that leave many vulnerable women feeling abandoned and others feeling like they have to choose abortion to achieve their goals and to really flourish, even though, as as you said, so many so many are able to have families, uh, have children and achieve these uh, these amazing things. But of course, the whole life movement uh, thinks about how we can structure society so that moms and babies and everyone can have all of their basic needs met and reach their full potential. So I I think that it's compatible with both types of feminism, but even more so with a particular type of radical feminism that is willing to challenge uh, an unjust status quo. Yeah, you know, I I always, uh, when Nancy Pelosi talks about her five kids uh, and where she is today, like having five kids didn't slow her down in any way. Uh, You know, she's the Speaker of the House. So I, I think we have to, instead of saying, kill your baby, let's look for opportunities to help women rise up and achieve their goals and dreams and what they want to do, rather than saying, let's end the life of this human being um, to achieve those goals. Yeah, no woman should have to make that choice between no. achieving what they want to do professionally and uh, their own children. Mm-mm. Our guest this month is Pastor Chris Butler, a Chicago native. Pastor Chris has worked in community and political organizing, helped to launch the Ann campaign, is a published author and podcaster, and he is, of course, a Christian pastor. He's currently running for Congress in the Democratic primary in Illinois' 1st District. Thank you so much for joining us for this interview, Pastor Chris. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time and um, are excited about this conversation. 
I think, first of all, we would love to hear about why you decided to show your hat into the ring and run for Congress. Yeah, I mean, I decided to do this just because looking at uh, the environment that we're currently in and sort of our, our national discourse, uh, there's simply too much division and too much uh, of what, what I think are too polarized and increasingly polarized parties uh, demanding that people uh, choose a, a lot of times between their, uh, their economic interest and their deeply held values. Uh, and America is just a lot more complex than that. And so many folks are being underrepresented or unrepresented, uh, not only in the first congressional district, but really in this discourse. And we need folks who really believe in unity, really believe uh, in, in diversity without division to step forward and lead uh, in this time. Uh, and so that, that's why I jumped into this race, because I think we need that nationally. And in the district where I live, uh, it's such a diverse district, so many hardworking people uh, who do so many different things. Um, but all of us, you know, really want basically the same things uh, out of life. We want to be able to raise a family and have a secure living and uh, be able to uh, live our values on a day-to-day -day basis without uh, fear of, of any kind of uh, reproach for that. And uh, you just don't hear that kind of leadership uh, in our political discourse. And I don't think it's because it's missing in our communities. Uh, I think it's very much alive there. Uh, and so I want to represent that. So you've talked about getting big money out of politics and redistricting and reform. Is what you were just talking about one of the reasons why we need this sort of structural political reform? I think it is one of the reasons why we need it. Um, I, I, but interestingly enough, I think it is one of the it, it creates an opportunity to really demonstrate uh, this kind of leadership, because I do think uh, that, for instance, redistricting is one of the reasons why the first congressional district uh, starts, you know, just south of the Chicago Loop and goes, you know, all the way down to Mokina, Illinois, uh, south of 80. I think that redistricting and, and sort of gerrymandering is part of that. Um, but it also gives an opportunity to demonstrate that even people who live in the south side of Chicago and folks who live down in the southwest suburbs and folks who live south of I-80 still have these things in common. They, they all want education for their children. They all want health care for their families. They all want, um, you know, safety in their neighborhoods. Uh, and so those challenges are there. We certainly need to get, uh, you know, this sort of big money control out of politics so that no matter where you live or what you do, your voice is not out sized in the discourse by folks who just have more money. Um, you know, that, that's a very important aspect of this. But those same challenges, I think, present really great opportunities to demonstrate the power of grassroots uh, organizing and grassroots campaigning, uh, the opportunity to demonstrate the power of, uh, of, of unity, uh, even across some, some real diversity of, um, of thought racial and economic diversity, uh, and all those types of things that we see in the first congressional district, um, people can come together across those lines. And I think we're going to demonstrate that in this campaign. Oh, I love what you're saying. It's just talking about unity and people working together. And, you know, in Congress, there's so much fighting and discourse. It would be so refreshing to have someone come there and, and try to um, work together for the betterment of the people. 
So, uh, you know, are there other reforms that you would that we would need to strengthen our American democracy that you could bring to Congress? I think so. I mean, so a, a couple of things that that I think are really important um, are, you know, the, the economic reforms that we need to uh, undertake. We, we really are living in a vision of our economy that was sort of born out of uh, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and we're in great need of, of sort of rebalancing and reimagining this economy, uh, taking account for the fact that, you know, there are more folks in the workforce. Um, there are folks who want to engage with the, in the workforce differently. Um, there's this huge explosion of uh, what folks call uh, gig economy, which, you know, if that's what we want to call it, that's, that's a beautiful word, but I really look at that and see an economy of folks who work really hard, uh, but, not, but are not covered by unemployment, do not get health insurance, um, you know, don't get paid days off. Uh, and we, we need to account for that because those folks are, are not just doing that as some kind of a side hustle. There are many people who uh, do those jobs uh, to to sustain their families, uh, so we have to account for those types of things. And so, when, when we start looking at that, we have to start thinking about revisiting our economy uh, and making it work for people. Uh, we have to think about uh, in that framework: Do we look at some type of uh, guaranteed basic income? Uh, how do we strengthen our labor unions as uh, some of these, you know, multinational uh, uh, corporations are, are literally gobbling up? percentages of the economy um, and it's very very difficult for workers to form unions it's very difficult even if you have a union for the union to act powerfully uh, on behalf of the worker I said a lot of reforms we need to make in uh, in, in, in the economy the reforms we need to make in education um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I look at the COVID uh, situation and it's heartbreaking because I spent a lot of time working in education and one of the things that you think about in education uh, are the gaps in opportunity uh, and um, sort of outcomes that already existed between uh, the rich and the poor uh, the you know people of color and and you know white communities uh, and then you look at COVID disruptions uh, these disruptions disproportionately impacted people of color and poor people so what kind of gap uh, opened up we need to study that, we need to understand it, uh, and we need to undertake a, a massive effort uh, not only to get schools back open, which is, you know, that's, that's certainly job one, but that's nowhere close to enough, right? Th this is an existential threat uh, because it could, if we don't address it, open up a gap uh, that would take generations to close, and we can't let that happen. Um, so I could go on and on about the things that we need to do. Uh, uh, in government, but, but I think that we don't get to any of those things uh, unless we figure out how to have a discourse that's focused on uh, real concrete issues in people's lives uh, and, and doesn't break down uh, along these sort of lines of, of sort of uh, cultural division. You've described yourself as a Hamer Democrat. Can you talk about Fannie Lou Hamer and what it means to be a Hamer Democrat? Yeah, I mean, so Fannie Lou Hamer is, is one of the heroes of the uh, of the civil rights movement. She uh, was was one of the organizers of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, and what it means to me to, to walk in her footsteps is that uh, what we saw Mrs. Hamer do is be a good Democrat, register people to vote, um, 
turn folks out to the polls to vote, participate in, in party activities, go to conventions, um, but be willing to stand up to the party uh, when the party is not representing the people well who live and work and have their lives in the communities uh, that she came from. So when, when the Democratic Party uh, was going to seat uh, a group of Democrats from Mississippi that were not representative, that did not take into account the African-American Democrats uh, in that state, she stood up to the party. Uh, she stood up to the presidential nominee of that party uh, and said the party uh, needs to do better on behalf of the people who I represent. And it, it did not make her a bad Democrat. I think it made her a better Democrat because she was able to eventually bring the party along uh, to the point that now, I mean, Democrats are the party of, of, of black folks. And I think that has a lot to do with people like Mrs. Hamer being able to stand up to the party and still be faithful to the party. So that, that to me is what it means to be a Hamer Democrat. So, and, you know, speaking of the party, you know, in the, the, you've criticized the party elites uh, who seem to care more about cultural issues um, rather than economic justice. Do you, what do you see the consequences of this fixation on the culture war? You know, I, I think when we allow folks on, on, on the right who are more than happy to drag us into this sort of culture war thing, uh, to dominate the conversation and literally drag us into it, we forget our focus on real concrete improvements in people's lives. Um, this Congress, we saw the leadership, you know, do a wonderful uh, sign of solidarity, uh, put on Kenta cloth and kneel in the Capitol. But we didn't pass any police reform. And we're content to blame the Democrat, blame the Republicans and move on, which may be a win on Twitter. It may be a win uh, in the media, but nothing changed in anybody's community anywhere. Uh, in the country, and that's not good enough. And yes, sometimes it's hard to uh, to negotiate and to deal with sort of uh, intransigent folks on the other side. Uh, but we've got to be more fixated on finding a way to win some kind of concrete improvement for people uh, in their lives, and, and and at least not take a victory lap when we haven't actually changed anything. On your site, uh, you mentioned Chris Arnade's book, Dignity. A big concern I have is that the educational divide will continue to grow and the Democratic Party will get pulled away from its working class base, away from the people that are chronicled in the book. Do you share that concern? And if so, do you think anything that can be done to reverse that trend? I, I do share that concern. and I do think something can be done about it. Uh, the thing that we have to do is that we have to get back to being uh, a, a big tent party. Um, people across this country and across the district that, that I hope to represent in Congress have different uh, sort of upbringings uh, and values. And, and, and when you start to say to folks uh, that if you hold a certain set of values uh, in, in, in your life about family and work and faith, you hold those values, you cannot participate in the party. Even, even though you share the economic objectives, even though uh, you share you know, most of the approach and, and, and all that type of stuff that we want to do, uh, you cannot be uh, at that point 
the Big Tent Party. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, as, as a pastor, uh, that's, that's a great concern to me because um, there, there are a lot of folks who want to hold to their values. And uh, if you pass through, you know, educate, higher education and, you know, sort of embrace, you know, some a, a more sort of liberal value set, that's great. Come be a part of the Democratic Party. But we cannot say that only those folks can be a part of the Democratic Party. Yeah, that is a big problem. You know, I think particularly for you know, pro-life Democrats who were constantly told, you know, we can't be part of the party and, um, you know, where we are supposed to be the big tent. Yep. So we do need, uh, you know, stronger voices in Congress advocating for the, the big tent to be inclusive, you know, uh, for, for people like us. And uh, I think one of the groups that I'm a big fan of is the AND campaign that you've been active with. And in fact, mm -hmm. we had Justin Gibney on our podcast a couple episodes ago. And um, they focus on Christian engagement in politics. And, uh, you know, how, how should Christians approach politics in the U United States? Yeah, so I, I, I think that we actually need, and, and this, this is not the AND campaign's podcast, so I won't go too much into this, but I do think that <laughs> Uh, the church needs a uh, a refreshed sort of hermeneutic on civic life in uh, the United States. One, you know, there's a very big emphasis in in scripture about submission to the government. Uh, but in a democratic society like we have, uh, our government is actually government of the people. Uh, and so we need to learn to read uh, scripture not only uh, through the lens of the governed, but actually through the lens of the governor, uh, because we have a responsibility to participate in that and to um, and and to and to to shepherd and steward uh, that governmental responsibility. So we don't have a we can't disengage. Uh, we have to be engaged. Uh, and as we engage, uh, we cannot only engage from the perspective of, of sort of what I would call our convictions, uh, what we think is right and what we think is wrong. Uh, because while, while the, the, the scriptures really do emphasize those convictions, uh, it equally emphasizes uh, a compassion that says that people who do not embrace those convictions are still created in the image of God are still worthy of dignity and love and respect and deserve to live uh, a life free of oppression and harm. And not only should we not be oppressing and harming people, we should actually be standing up against anybody who would oppress or harm anybody in our communities or in our society. Uh, so I think we, we need a, a hermeneutic, uh, a way of looking at uh, our, our faith uh, or at least our our participation in civics and government uh, through that fresh lens, um, which would open us up, I think, to uh, uh, a more faithful way of participating in civics and government. What would you say to a secular person who had concerns about a candidate that seemed to be primarily motivated by their religious convictions? Well, I, I would say uh, to that uh, secular person, the second part of what I just said, um, my religious convictions are profoundly grounded in this idea of compassion, uh, which means that people who do not embrace, uh, you know, the convictions that I embrace, who do not see the world exactly uh, the way that I do, can still have 
righteous values, can still have good ideas, uh, and are still very much worthy of respect and love and dignity, uh, and to live a life free from uh, harm and oppression. And my religious conviction tells me uh, that not only should I refrain from harming you or oppressing you, I should actually be standing up for you anytime anybody else tries to harm you or oppress you. Uh, so while I can't speak for everybody's religious conviction, uh, I would say to that secular person, understand what my religious conviction is. Uh, and I think it will be something that you can get on board with, whether you embrace my religious views uh, or not. Mm -hmm. Lately, there's been controversy around what many people are calling critical race theory, usually incorrectly. Um, black pastors and Christian leaders, meanwhile, have been talking about systemic racism and reducing racial disparities for a long time, a long, long time. Do you think these voices are too often ignored today in discussions of anti-racism? And what do you make of this whole polarized fight we're seeing on this subject? So, again, I, I would say first that this is one of those places where uh, we just can't allow folks who would love to distract from conversations about concrete outcomes for people in their lives, uh, drag us into these types of conversations. Uh, you know, there are a lot of folks who would love to see us spend all of our time uh, talking about critical race theory, because then we're not talking about, um, you know, minimum wage, we're not talking about guaranteed basic income, we're not talking about education, we're not talking about healthcare. Um, you know, it, it's, it's very clear to me. I was actually with a, a couple of friends on Sunday uh, evening, and we were talking about this. I mean, in, in the black church, we have had a lexicon uh, and approach uh, to talking about the, the accurate teaching of history, uh, wrestling with issues of racial and economic justice. We've had this lexicon, uh, a huge body of of work and thought and preaching and protest and uh, just everything, a rich history of this that goes back literally at this point centuries. Uh, and so to uh, the fact that everybody's sort of acting what we would say, uh, you know, as, as a millennial, you know, acting all brand new uh, with, <laughs> with, with these, these issues is unexplainable to me. Uh, and, and I think the, the, the main thing that we need to do uh, in every case that somebody tries to drag us into this, uh, it, it's sort of like when you already wrote the book and you already gave the interviews. We, we've been discussing this. Uh, our views on this are very clear. Uh, they are very public. They have been for a long time. Uh, and, you know, we can just say that and then get back to the issues of today and tomorrow, education, health care economy. Folks need jobs, safety in their communities, uh, economic safety for their families and their homes. And that's all we should be talking about. And anybody who tries to drag us into another distraction conversation, uh, we just should avoid it at all costs. That's a great answer. You know, to get back to the basics of what, what families and communities need. Um, I love that. Uh, you know, we, we, you've covered in that second part of your discussion a lot of uh, important issues. I just wanted to see if there were any other things central to your campaign that we missed discussing that you'd like to, to talk about. Those are the things uh, that are central to this campaign. I don't uh, think that we 
uh, have missed anything here because it, it's actually not that complicated. No. Uh, it is It is really about let's get away from the distractions. I think our party has in too many cases. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that, that we started it, but I do think that we have in too many cases allowed ourselves to be dragged way too far uh, down this road, getting into what I call an opposition-centered politics where we just look at what the other side is doing and then we try to be as far away from that as possible when that can't be our politics. We have to get back to centering people in our communities uh, who are worried about where they're going to live and how they're going to provide for their families and is their community going to be safe. I live in a city where in, in inside of a 48-hour period, a 70-year-old woman and a 6-year-old girl were both shot to death. We don't have time to be talking about critical race theory and, and, and Dr. Seuss and whether somebody who uh, it, it believes that life starts in the womb can be part of the party, right? Like we need to be focused on safety and housing mm -hmm. and education and, and jobs. That's what this campaign is all about. Let's, let's come together, everybody who believes in those things, because that's what our party is supposed to be. Everybody who mm -hmm. believes in those things, let's get together, let's focus on those things, and day by day, Congress by Congress, uh, you know, make concrete steps forward uh, on all these issues that are important to us. That's uh, it's so inspiring to hear you speak, and uh, very excited that you uh, entered this race and um, wish you the best on this. Uh, it's been just a real pleasure having you uh, as a guest today. And if people want to learn more about your campaign and the other work you're doing, uh, how can they hear more? Yes. So uh, if you go to uh, the website, which is uh, electchrisbutler.com, www.electchrisbutler.com, uh, you can find out all about what we're doing in the campaign. Uh, we've actually linked uh, on the campaign website to a lot of the other work that I'm doing. So uh, that's a great place to start. Um, and, and I'll just say again, uh, uh, Kristen, Robert, that this, this campaign really is setting out to prove uh, that grassroots organizing can beat big money. I don't think that we're going to have, I mean, I've sat here and talked about, uh, you know, guaranteed basic income that takes a lot of big corporations off the table. Uh, I'm talking about expanding uh, access to health care. The pharmaceutical folks aren't going to be uh, too happy with that. Uh, we're talking about, um, you know, we're, we're on a whole live podcast. We all know the kind of stuff that that brings. Uh, but, but I think that we can uh, outwork all of the big money, big power, special interest, party establishment, or anybody else who tries to stop us uh, and really get this thing done. But we can't do it unless everybody who's listening to this podcast really does go to the website. Um, I, I'm an organizer, so I know that a lot of y'all want to just you know, listen to the podcast. You hear the website. You might think about the website, but you don't really go to the website. Uh, I'm encouraging you uh, and, and challenging you to actually go to electchrisbutler.com sign up to volunteer, donate, make some phone calls if you're in Chicago and area, knock on some doors with us. Uh, and, and let's prove that there really is still hope for this style and brand of democracy.
Our next segment is On the Ground and on the Hill, where we talk about whole life grassroots activism, campaigning, and legislative efforts. You and everyone at Democrats for Life have remained focused on the Hyde Amendment in recent months. What is the latest with the Hyde Amendment? And the latest, we had a vote last week where Senator Joe Manchin, who is our hero in the Senate, uh, remains firm, and he voted to, to, for, to save the Hyde Amendment um, in the budget reconciliation measure. And uh, it, it passed, thanks to Joe Manchin. We were very pleased with him standing firm and to his commitment to us to protect the Hyde Amendment. Uh, unfortunately, Senator Casey from Pennsylvania uh, did not vote for the Hyde Amendment. We're very disappointed in him. We're meeting with his staff next week and hopefully him when uh, they come back to Washington to understand why he didn't support the Hyde Amendment when he told us that he did. So that's that's a mystery we're going to have to unfold on where he's going on this. Um, you know, his his father was one of the strongest pro-life Democrats uh, in as governor of Pennsylvania and you know, we want Senator Casey to follow that lead instead of going the direction of um, you know, listening to what the abortion lobby wants. We're very disappointed in his vote. But uh, thankfully, Joe Manchin is, is remaining firm. Uh, we are also, when, actually on Friday, we're going down to uh, rally in, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, to urge Abigail Spanberger to support the Hyde Amendment and protect the Hyde Amendment. We are also having rallies all around the country. We're continuing to outreach to the um, Democrats in the House who supported Hyde prior and telling them that they need to go back to their prior position and save the Hyde Amendment because that's where a majority of Americans stand. And, uh, you know, we're going to keep pushing this as, as, until we save it. Uh, and we, we feel like we can. And uh, there's just no, we, we can't let up. We can't stop. We need to keep pushing and keep speaking up and keep contacting these members and telling them to do the right thing. And what's the timeline look like on this? So they're going to come, the, the House version of the Labor HHH Appropriations Bill, as you know, did not contain the Hyde Amendment. Um, and so the Senate's going to have to vote on it, where it, uh, it will have to come out of committee. And we expect that it will come out of committee with the Hyde Amendment on it because Joe Manchin is on the committee, and he said that it's not coming out of the committee unless it contains Hyde. Uh, Senator Patty Murray kind of relented that she wants to get rid of the Hyde, but they don't have the votes. Um, thanks to our pro-life hero, Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin. Um, and so we're hoping that Casey will come clean and um, admit that he was wrong on that pass vote, and then he'll, he'll support Joe Manchin and join Joe Manchin in uh, protecting Hyde. And also we have a third... Um, Tim Kaine also voted for the Hyde Amendment previously, so we're talking to him to urge him to do the right thing, too, and protect Hyde in the Senate. Uh, so then the House and Senate would have to work out their differences, but we're um, really uh, pushing for the Senate version, and, um, and hopefully we can, we can win on that. So Senator Casey has a chance to redeem himself on, on, on the big vote. He does. He does. If he, um, you know, and if he had a problem with the way the amendment was written, you know, write your own amendment and, you know, save hide yourself. There's lots of there's lots of solutions here rather than just voting against it and um, allowing abortion funding like that. That to me is not a solution. That's um, just laying over and, and giving up. And that's not we need we need some leadership from him in protecting the Hyde Amendment. Down in Louisiana, we've had some 
whole life developments. First Lady Donna Edwards joined the Democrats for Life Advisory Board. That's exciting. Yes. And her husband, Governor John Bell Edwards, has passed some whole life legislation. Could you tell us about some of the measures he has signed recently? Yeah. So first of all, they're a fabulous couple. Both of them are pro-life for the whole life and, um, you know, just an amazing power couple. And it was such a a thrill. I was down in Baton Rouge and and got to sit down with the first lady for a a really long conversation. It was such a pleasure. Um, You know, we're about the same age. Our kids are about the same age. So we have just a lot in common and um, and a lot of the same goals to, you know, pro-life for the whole life. So it was just a thrill. And so excited that she's uh, joined our advisory board. She has a lot of great ideas, and uh, we look forward to to working with her. Uh, but, and she and her husband both um, have pushed for a lot of great whole life initiatives in Louisiana. And, you know, especially lowering the uh, number of kids in foster care and getting them into permanent homes, uh, workplace accommodations for pregnant women. Um, ending the tax on feminine, feminine hygiene products, and uh, the most recent one, he signed the Abortion Pill Re- Reversal Disclosure Act, which will, will allow women who take the first abortion pill to um, get, receive information that they can reverse it once the abortion starts, which is really good information for women to have because, you know, when you're pregnant and you're scared and there's a lot of unanswered questions about what support is out there for you, uh, you might feel desperate and take the steps to get an abortion. But to get that information that you can reverse it if you change your mind is a very powerful, powerful tool that women have used. And uh, in fact, there was a woman, a uh, mother of twins, who used that option in, um, in Baton Rouge, I believe, and uh, has now twin, twin babies. So we, I think that information is really good to have. And we're grateful for the governor to, for signing that into law. Yeah, and it's wonderful to see such consistency in his commitment to life across all those things. And Yes, yes. He, he is my hero. Uh, you know, I think I wish we had more. Like, I think Chris Butler, uh, who we were talking to today, is he's another one of those whole life people. And we need more of those voices speaking out and being consistent in their position for to protecting life from womb to tomb and helping families and giving the opportunity to be parents. Like it's all interconnected of the support and the, you know, a living wage and, um, you know, all, all of it's interconnected to promote a whole life uh, ethic. So the whole life conference recently took place. Can you tell us a little bit about how the conference went? It was so much fun because a lot of us had never met in person you know, because of COVID, we've been doing a lot of Zoom meetings. And some of us, you know, have known each other for a year, over a year, but only through Zoom. So it honestly felt like a family reunion when we showed up and everyone was so excited to, to meet each other. Lots of hugs and um, just excitement to see each other in person. Um, it was just a, an incredible conference. And we had uh, Angie Hatton was there and gave a very, um, you know, powerful speech. And Katrina Jackson was amazing. She spoke at the dinner and talking about the Hyde Amendment and we, how we must protect the Hyde Amendment. And uh, we gave our whole life leadership award to Russell Ott. And that was very exciting, too, to have these, you know, we had a lot of legislators there. We had two candidates. Like Chris Butler was there. Uh, and, you know, just this, the energy in the room was just uh, incredible and inspirational, you know, to be around all these like-minded people who just have this, uh, we want to protect life from womb to tomb 
uh, one of the panels, in fact, was, um, you know, on the death penalty, and we had a man who was exonerated. I didn't, people were, I mean, very emotional. You know, if you imagine, you know, convicted of a crime and on death row for some, a crime you didn't commit, and um, just to hear his story was uh, just, uh, well, just so emotional. And, um, you know, the panels, all the panels were so good. Um, it was just that the energy was great. I wish that everybody could have joined us there. But, you know, we kept it small um, and vaccinated. Everyone was vaccinated <laughs> and uh, making sure that we had, you know, distance between people. We kept it very safe. And it was a it was a great, great, great event. Great. Hopefully by next year, we'll we'll be able to have a nice big event with uh, everyone in attendance without having to worry too much about COVID. Yes, let's uh, God willing. Let's hope let's hope so. So we will we will be marching for life in January. So Everyone should put that on their calendar and hopefully we'll all be able to join together for that. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our latest episode. Whole Life Rising is brought to you by Democrats for Life of America and Millennial. We want to thank Democrats for Life for taking the lead in fundraising for the show. If you'd like to make a contribution to ensure the long-term viability of the show, please visit the Democrats for Life homepage or our show notes. And please subscribe to the podcast and give it a good review if you'd like to hear more. Until next time, thank you.